Good morning, everybody, brothers and sisters. It's good that we can all be here to worship, uh, whether if you're at home and whether for those of you who are here. I uh, just want to thank you for even during this time that we can still worship our Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's begin by praying. Father, we come before you and asking that as we come before your holy word, the authority of your word, I ask that you would teach us, instruct us, as you always do as we read your, your word. I also pray that as we listen to what your word teaches, may you please open up the eyes of our hearts to behold the wondrous things that come from your word. I pray that for myself, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And God, I ask that uh, you would be glorified. We trust that, we, that your word, as it goes forth, it will not return to you void. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you a question. Is English your second language? Well, some, for some of you, English may be your second language. And for some of you, English is not your second language. You grew up with it. And for me, I was born in Hong Kong. But I came to Canada when I was very young. But I spoke, Eng so, but I spoke English for most of my life. So it's kind of you know, debatable whether English is considered my second language, because my Cantonese is not very good. Now, some would say that English is one of the hardest languages to learn, but I'll let you decide for yourself. According to the Royal Oxford Academy, one of the reasons why English is known for being difficult is because it is full of contradictions. There are innumerable examples of conundrums such as, there is no ham in a hamburger. Neither is there any apple nor pine in a pineapple. If teachers taught, why, didn't, why don't preachers like me prot? If a vegetarian, if a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? Learning a new language is difficult. It may be especially difficult to learn the language if you're not immersed in the environment and in the culture where that language is spoken and you're forced to use it on a daily basis. So just using English as an example, you initially begin learning English by memorizing the alphabets, pronouncing the words and the letters, and then memorizing the vocabulary. And as you progress, you start learning to form a sentence by learning this terrifying concept called grammar. Now, this may sound counterproductive, but when I first, when I began learning Biblical Greek with Dr. Herb Sturhan, my English grammar improved. Instead of <laughs> Greek improving, but don't worry, I, I, I got it. <laughs> but when you begin learning a new language, you need to learn the fundamental basics of the English grammar and how a sentence is structured so that you could understand how the grammar functions in another language. For instance, you learn about subject, object, verbs, 
prepositions, predicate. Do you still know what that is? Participle, dative, singular noun, plural nouns, and the article. You see, language is, is different in many, many ways from in, in different cultures because they different cultures, different languages use different grammatical principles when, stru when structuring a sentence. And for most of us who grew up speaking English, we may not be conscious about the basic and the grammatical principles in our daily conversation because, well, we usually know how good English to sound. When you became a disciple of Jesus, you begin learning to speak like a Christian, think like a Christian, and live out the Christian life. And as you are growing in spiritual maturity, uh, you begin learning the language of the Bible. And what I mean by that is that you will start learning to speak and to live out the grammar of the gospel. Now, in the letter of 1 John, we have been learning and understanding about the assurance of salvation. And the more I study 1 John, the more I'm convinced that John wants us to have a clearer understanding of the gospel. The reason is that if we understand the gospel accurately as revealed in the word of God, we should without a doubt have assurance that we have eternal life. However, if we misunderstand the gospel, then we may fall into careless presumptions about our assurance of the gospel and also having a poor understanding of what the gospel calls us to do. If we, if we misconstrue the gospel, then we may not be building our lives on solid rock, but rather on a quicksand. And so what I hope to do in this message in 1 John is to take another step to refine our understanding of the gospel by exploring this concept called the grammar of the gospel. Now, this grammar is especially important for you to know and understand because your Christian life depends on it. Now, we may not be conscious about it. We may not think about this concept, but it does. We may understand it as I explain it, but as we read the Bible, we will start to understand, oh, so that's how the how, the, how this Bible is structured in this way. You see, if I could even put it more severely, I would even suggest that death and life hangs on knowing your grammar. And so what exactly is the grammar, the grammar of the gospel? Now, here are the grammatical principles that we need to apply in our Christian life. First, there is the indicative of the gospel. Second, there is the imperative of the gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with those principles, then please listen carefully because I will be explaining it in the next few minutes. Uh, I, don't, I also don't want you to misunderstand those two words because they sound almost similar, but they mean totally different things, okay? So the indicative, it just simply means a statement of facts or assertion of truths. So just to give you an example, I am standing on the stage. That is an indicative. You are sitting on your seat or in the pew. Or for those who are in here, you're sitting on your pew. And for, you, for those of you at home, you are sitting on your couch, I think, or somewhere. The imperative 
the imperative is the commandment or the instruction. For instance, since I am standing on the stage, I, I may be told to get off the stage. And maybe for you, you may be told to get off the pews. And for those, who have, for those of you who are home, you may be told to help out with the reopening team. Now, the indicative, the gospel indicative, teaches us the theology and the doctrine surrounding the components of the gospel message. Statement of facts, description of truths. For instance, God created the world. God is the creator. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Jesus shed his blood for you. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been set free in Christ Jesus. That's gospel indicative. Statement of facts. The imperative of the gospel is the fruit and the evidence that we have come to truly believe in the gospel. You see, the indicative, think about it as a root. That it is the root of everything, your foundation of the Christian life. Whereas the imperative, look at it as a tree, you bear fruit. And as you bear fruit, uh, it shows that your root is healthy. See, for instance, because of the gospel indicative, because of the foundation that you have, therefore, you're called to obey the commandments. You're called to bear fruits. For instance, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Renew your mind. Be humble. Be patient. Don't be foolish. Flee from sexual immorality, and etc. See, the grammar of the gospel must always be structured this way logically. The, go the gospel indicative always leads to the gospel imperative. The gospel indicative always leads to the gospel imperative. Now, pay close attention to what the New Testament writers do, and even in the whole Bible. They would state the fact of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for his people and assert the reality of what is true in the believers. And after stating the indicative, they would often use words such as therefore or so to give instructions and, or commandments. Or to put it this way, since this is true of you, of who you are in Christ Jesus and what he has done for you, therefore, go and obey this instruction. There are two examples from the New, from the New Testament, or to put it another way, there are two, here are the two of the many examples from the New Testament that I want to share with you. Colossians chapter 2, the indicative is this, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, that is reality. You have believed. You have received him. The imperative is this. So walk in him. Romans chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. For the death he died, that is Jesus, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. That is reality. That is an indicative. But here's the imperative. See, because that is true, the imperative is this. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see, there is a danger. There is a danger in the Christian life where we may flip the grammar of the gospel around. And for the slides, I want to can you go to the next slide, please. See, there's a danger in the Christian life where we may flip the grammar of the gospel around. See, we may focus on the imperatives in order to get the indicatives. Now, knowingly or unknowingly, we may think that trying our best to do good works, serve God, and follow rules will, will result in having our sins forgiven, making God love us more, and earning our salvation. That's actually incorrect. This kind of thinking is what other religions and society teaches. We live in a society that is heavily focused on work-based righteousness. Do this and do that so that you don't mess up your, with your life, so that you can go ahead with life and you may, de may be deemed as a good person. So some, for some people, I want to do good things. I want to do good things so that you know, God will love me more. You see, if you flip the grammar of the gospel around, then you actually flip biblical Christianity on its head. You will start thinking that your salvation is dependent upon your own merits. And when you only depend on the imperative and you forget the indicative, you may feel drained as a Christian, weary and joyless, because you may forget why you are doing what you are doing. Or perhaps you may even forget why you're a Christian. And so what should motivate you? What should encourage you to obey the imperatives of the gospel? It is when you come back again and again to the indicative, to the roots of your Christian life. That is where you draw your spiritual strength, your nutrients to produce good fruit and to live out the joyful Christian life. So like any tree, any fruit that you see on a tree, it relies on the root. It depends on it. Because without the root, if the root is not healthy, then the tree will die. It will not produce good fruit. Your obedience, your love for the Lord flows out of your understanding of who God is, what Christ has done for you, and your identity in Christ. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, if that is true of who you are, that you really love me, then you will keep my commandments. And even John earlier in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You see, John is stating that since you have come to know Christ, since you already have a relationship with him, since that is true of who you are, that reality, that truth, ought to move you to obedience. Now, if you remember the story of Mary and Martha at the end of Luke chapter 10, you could argue that Martha had poor grammar and Mary had good grammar. Martha focused more on serving, working, and being busy instead of learning from Jesus, sitting under the preaching of God's word, and spending time in the word and in prayer. 
You see, the passage says, the passage says that Mary, Martha was distracted, and Jesus said that she's tr- anxious and she's troubled about many things. Mary, on the other hand, chose the good portion, and hence we need to have a good grammar of the gospel. See, why have, I have spent so much time introducing us to this concept of the grammar of the gospel is because John wants us to think this way. Based on our text for this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, we do see the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative. The gospel indicative is found in verses 12 to 14, and the gospel imperative is found in verses 15 to 17. Now, for this morning, I'm not going to show this, the passages on the slides, and I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2 and just follow along with me. You see, in verses 12 to 14, John's tone changes from his previous one. His previous tone was somewhat polemical as he addressed some people who claim to have fellowship with God, uh, who claim to know God, who claim to walk in the light, while in reality they're liars, they have rejected the truth, and they're walking in darkness. His tone in this passage is rather gentle and encouraging and reassuring for us because he explains the indicatives, or, or in other words, the truth and reality of who we are in Christ and even our identity in Christ. So with your Bible, let us read 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, a few comments on the structure of this passage. John gives two sets of three exhortations. He addresses to the little children, fathers, and young men. Now, for most of you who have read 1 John many times, this is perhaps one of the most obscure passages in 1 John. So, I will do my best to give you perhaps the most reasonable interpretation, even though many scholars have come to different conclusions for how we are to understand this passage. Now, there are a number of suggested interpretations regarding the meaning of the three groups, the children or little children, fathers and young men. The first option is this. These three groups of people symbolize different stages of their spiritual maturity. The, the little children or the children, uh, they are to be viewed as baby Christians who are just starting out their Christian faith. The fathers are the spiritually mature Christians who have been on a journey of faith for a long time. Young men are the growing believers. They already know the basics of the Christian faith, the sound doctrine, and the, and the ability to refute errors. 
they're on their way to becoming spiritual fathers. Now, most people would turn, would actually lean towards this option, but there is a second option, which I personally lean towards. See, when John addresses them as little children or children, he's actually speaking to all the Christians, not to little kids per se, not to baby Christians, because John uses the same word, little children, technia, to address Christians throughout this letter. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1, he uses this, this same word, my little children, and he uses this many times throughout this letter. So I'm, I think when John is talking about the little children or the children here in this passage, he is speaking to all Christians. And after speaking to the whole church, he separates them into two groups, fathers and young men. Now, it is quite possible that these two groups have something to do with their chronological age, not necessarily their level of spiritual maturity. You see, you could be old, but perhaps you may have recently come to know Christ, and you're slowly growing in your spiritual maturity. You could be a young man who have been walking in the faith for a long time, and you are spiritually mature. So those are the two options, but I would lean towards the second option, but up to you. I don't think there's anything wrong with the first option, except I don't see, you know, why we need to symbolize everything. But another puzzling thing about the structure of, of this passage is why John switches from I am writing to you to I write to you or I have written to you. He changes the tenses here. Uh, now, in all my hours of studying, I have not found a satisfying answer. But consider the suggestions from scholars. Some say that there is no significant meaning to the change in tenses. Others would say that the switch of the tenses may mean that there is a change in reference as to what he wrote. So maybe verses 12 to 13 speak of the whole letter of First John, but verse 14 only refers to the part he has already written thus far. In addition, why does John repeat himself? He already said the same, almost the same, he said the things in verse 12 and verse 13, but why does he repeat himself in verse 14? Well, I think as a pastor and as a teacher, John is emphasizing and even stressing his point and even adding to his point to his audience about the blessings and the privileges they have received from God as a result of being a Christian. Now, here's what the passage does not mean. John is not dividing the congregation where the little children will, you know, they will have this blessing, and the fathers will have this blessing, and the young men will have this blessing. John is not saying that such particular blessing is not also true of the other groups. So what I think John is attempting to do here is that he addresses to each of these groups who are affected in a particular manner by the false teachers. Remember, John wrote this letter because there were false teachers that came in, taught certain things, they left and took some people with them. And so John may be offering, he might be offering reassurance 
to these groups of people of who they are in Christ because the false teachers, they, they came and they tried to distort their understanding of the gospel and rob them of their assurance and their joy in Christ. Now, what, I, what is clear in this passage, regardless of how you want to look at this passage or interpret it, what is clear in this passage are the indicatives. What I think John is trying to do with these indicatives is to give a particular aspect of reassurance to the believers in to each of these groups. And so the way I'll walk us through this passage is by addressing each group and then the indicatives. So first, in verse 12 and at the end of verse 13, John reassures the little children, all believers, because their sins are forgiven for his name's sake and because they know the Father. How can our sins be forgiven? Not by blood of goats or by blood of calves, not by penance, indulgence, and sacraments. It is only by the blood of Jesus that our sins can be forgiven and washed away. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he paid the penalty of our sins, and he washed us as white as snow. The greatest blessing that people can ever experience before God is that their sins can be forgiven through Jesus. Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 to 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now some of you may feel that you are a really sinful person, and that you did terrible things in your life, and you feel like you need to do something to make God approve of you. But let me encourage you, the gospel is beautiful. It is not, the, it, it's not you doing the imperative, and then the indicative happens. But rather, here's the good news. Even the Apostle Paul, he recognizes he's the worst of all sinners, right? But the good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like him. Forgiveness of sin is not something we, you have done or can even do, but it is accomplished by Jesus on the cross when you place your faith and your trust in him for salvation. It is only in Christ where you can experience redemption and forgiveness of all your trespasses. Furthermore, forgiveness of sins is ultimately not about you. As John says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, meaning it's all about the glory of Christ. God chooses to forgive your sins because it glorifies his holy name. John further says to the Christians that they, they know the Father or that they have come to know the Father. This is true of who you are. Not only are your sins forgiven in Christ, you also know the Father, and you have a relationship with Him. Prior to salvation, sin is what separated you from God. However, what Christ has accomplished on the cross, what He has done for you on the cross, was to reconcile you to a saving relationship 
with the Father. That is the foundation. It is foundational to the Christian faith, to the Christian life. That is the gospel indicative. You have been forgiven, and you know the Father. You see, in his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer once said this, and I quote, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood, of the holy creator, in the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all, end quote. See, Jesus Christ, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he did not say, our God in heaven, hallowed be your name, although that could have been true, but it's so significant that Christ taught his disciples and also us to pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. This expression in our prayers shows our intimacy with God the Father. It shows that we have a relationship with Him. Christ, He wants us to call God as our Father. He wants us to look at Him as our Father. He wants us to know that God cares about us and He loves us deeply. And He is a Father who listens to our prayers. Whether you are a new believer or a mature believer, forgiveness of sins by faith in the person of Jesus and knowing God as your Father are foundational for your Christian life. Next, John then reassures the fathers in verse 13 and also in verse 14, because they know him who is from the beginning. And as I mentioned, I don't think fathers may always mean that they are spiritually mature just because they are older. You see, some of you may have rejected Christ for the most part of your life. You pursued your earthly ambition and you, you went through retirement. But you may have realized over the years of your life that your life was futile without God. And the Holy Spirit did a supernatural work in your heart through the word of truth, through the word of the gospel. And when you, when you believe in the gospel, you come to know Jesus Christ and his saving power. And now you want to live the last part of your life glorifying him and growing as a believer. Of course, there are others of you and most of you that I know who are older than me. You have come to know Christ for so many years. You may remember clearly the day, the moment in your life that you have come to believe in Christ and you have walked the Christian life and you have faced various trials and temptations as a Christian. And John, he wants to reassure you for those, you have, for those of you who are new to the Christian faith 
And for those of you who have walked this faith for a long time, he wants to reassure you that you have come to know him and that you have an ongoing relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we need fathers. We need older Christians in our life because they have walked a long life and they can be of great wisdom for us as young people. They can be a great wisdom for us as young people. They can be an example for us of how to live out the Christian life. What I think John is reassuring to the seniors of the church, for all of you, for all of you, is that you, have know, you know Christ. You know him who is from the beginning. You know him who has revealed himself in the word of God who has revealed himself in the beginning of his earthly ministry. And lastly, John reassures the young men in verse 13 and in verse 14. You see, in verse 13, he says to the young men, I, write, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, John's encouragement to the young men in verse 13 is expanded upon in verse 14. He adds more things to it. So one commentator helpfully puts it this way, and I quote, They have overcome the evil one because they are strong, and they are strong because the word of God lives in them, end quote. Again, John is stating the indicative to the young people who are spiritually strong or spiritually mature. They're the ones who have overcome the evil one because they have the abiding word of God in them. They have God's word. They have hidden God's word in their hearts so that they may not sin against him. They are strong because they are wearing the whole armor of God. They are equipping themselves with the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to fight against the evil one. They recognize that the Christian life in this passage, that the Christian life is a spiritual warfare. And when I say spiritual warfare, I don't necessarily mean fighting against Satan and demons and the devils, although certainly they're part of it. But what I mean is that spiritual warfare, warfare is often a battle for truth and a battle against falsehood. They, these people, these young people, are ready to destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, like I said, with the background of 1 John, false teachers have come and they have left the church. And because of all those things that happened, there are some people, some church members, who actually remained in that church. And John reassures to the young people and the rest of the folks, but particularly to the young people, that they have overcome the evil one. Most likely, most likely talking about the false teachings, I think. If not, but perhaps he's talking about the world, the systems of the world, as he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 15. See, these young people, they have rejected their teachings, their beliefs, and their behaviors, and even the values of this world. And then the more they study the word of God and arm themselves with sound doctrine, they can distinguish the truth from falsehood. That's the gospel indicative in verses 12 to 14. Your sins are forgiven. 
you know the Father. You know Him who is from the beginning. You are strong. You have overcome the evil one. You have the Word of God abiding in you because you are in Christ. John reassures the believers and also us because he knows that is true of them. And there are some questions we've got to reflect upon as we examine this, as we just finish this passage. Are these gospel indicatives true of you as well? Are your sins forgiven? Do you know the Father? Do you know him who is from the beginning? Have you overcome the evil one? Is John also speaking to you and reassuring you as well? Since those are true of who we are in Christ, since, since verses 12 to 14 are true of us, therefore, we are given this imperative or commandment do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. Because of who you are in Christ, you are called to set yourself apart from the values and from the ways of this world. You are called to live in holiness and to do the will of the Father. That is the gospel imperative. And next Sunday, I plan to give another sermon on this particular passage of not loving the world. But for now, understand the main point. You need to know the grammar of the gospel. Do not flip the grammar around. Do not think the, that the imperative of the gospel leads to the gospel of uh, the indicative of the gospel because you will destroy the gospel and it will be another gospel, not the biblical gospel. St. Clair Ferguson, the, the Scottish, Scottish theologian, said that our response to the gospel must be deeply rooted in our understanding of the gospel. He says that if we don't understand this, then we misspeak the gospel. And that sometimes happens for way too long in the lives of Christians, partly because they've not yet come to the appreciation of how the Bible works. That's what Sinclair Ferguson said. He says that our response to what God has done for us must be deeply rooted in our understanding of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. And because when we understand that we are saved by grace, that ought to motivate us to bear good fruit. You need to know this grammar of the gospel. You need to know that the gospel indicative always leads to the gospel imperative. These simple truths that John laid out for us will hopefully serve to encourage you, build you up, and reassure you of your identity in Christ. 
And here's my gospel, here's my imperative for you, my, comm- my instruction for you. Continue to root yourself in your understanding of who God is. Even as Paul says, root yourself in Christ. Find your spiritual strength in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Abide in him. Abide in Christ because apart from him, you cannot bear any fruit. You cannot even do anything at all as a Christian. You will live your Christian life feeling joyless, weary, and tired because you've forgotten the root. Or as Jesus would even say in Revelation, you have forgotten your first love. May we be the people who are truly assured of our salvation. May we be people who are deeply grounded in the indicative of the gospel. May we be people who read the word of God, know the word of God, know the indicatives. And by doing so, we may joyfully live out the imperative of the gospel to the honor and the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, you would help us to be clear on this, this important principle of knowing what you have done for us, knowing that Christ gave his life for us, and because of what he has done for us on the cross, that ought to motivate us to love you. But when we flip it, when, when we flip the grammar around, when we only focus on the indicatives, when we only focus on just doing, doing, and going about and serving you and forget the root, oh Lord, we may feel dry in our Christian life. So please, Lord, encourage us. Encourage us always to remember, of, to remember and to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and what he has done for us to save us. And because of what he's done for us, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him. We live for him. So Lord, please help us to refine our understanding of the gospel every moment of our lives.